I'd like to start a series that will take us for four weeks entitled, Why Are You a Christian? Now, I want to give a couple caveats, a couple disclaimers, I suppose, at the beginning. The very first one is to recognize that even though I've entitled this, Why Are You a Christian? I also acknowledge and recognize that we have a vast diversity of people in our community, both in the room as well as people listening online. And not everybody actually claims to be a Christian that is a part of our community. So we have people of all sorts of different faiths or no faith at all. And this is just a way of making sure that I say that we honor every single person that is in our midst. And we are, we have never been the kind of church that checks what you believe at the door to make sure that you believe everything that we believe so that you can come in. No, you are a human being, so you belong. That's first and foremost. And so even though I'm going to be talking about reasons for being a Christian or even invoking a sense, a question, why are we a Christian? What does that even mean? I also want to recognize that not everyone would fit into that category. So if you don't fit into that category of identifying as a Christian, the question is just flipped. Why don't you consider yourself a Christian? Or what other questions might arise regarding your faith journey? Now, this isn't going to be an argument for Christianity in the way that you might be expecting. I'm going to share a little bit of that in just a few moments. But I would like for all of us, all of us in this room, And all of us listening to pause just for a moment and ask the question of ourselves, what is it that we actually believe and why do we actually believe it? It is very common and in fact might be the default position for many of us to just simply go through life and pass on through and never actually stop and take stock. Maybe a spiritual audit of what's really going on. And especially in the world uh, that is constantly changing, where things are shifting, uh, the need for us to stop and pause and reflect is actually really, really extremely important. Which brings me to number two, this, this question I'm hoping actually not to answer. Because good questions actually don't lead to answers. Good questions lead to more questions. They lead to deeper questions. They lead to greater discoveries, deeper senses of understanding. So rather than just giving a talk, although I will give one, I would like to share with you some amazing writings from the first and second century about what people were talking about Christianity. Even though we're going to talk about that, ultimately, I'd like for us to land on this question. So why am I blank? And what does that mean? And how does that inform and shape how I live? And then once we answer, quote, that question Hopefully, four or five other questions open up as a result of this. I'm super excited about this. Uh, Next week, as you know, Justin Lee is going to be here. The week after that, we're actually going to be interviewing some of our own people on this very question and see how they would like to answer the question. How would they respond to the question, um, why are you a Christian? And I'm hoping through Justin's talk, which is all about talking across the divide and having conversations, and then the consecutive weeks where we get others of uh, our, our own community sparkers to actually address this question. I'm hoping that you will be prodded. Hopefully, that you will be inspired, that you will, something will spark within inside of you saying, you know what, this is a, actually a great conversation to have with my family, with my com- community, with the people that I'm around, maybe your small group or whatever. So what is it that makes us this particular faith? So That's what I'm hoping to do over this series. I hope you enjoy it, but I also hope that you are intrigued. And I hope that it pushes all of us, this community, to really wrestle with the question. 
The central basis for this is going to come out of 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, uh, I'm not quite sure how many of us are still bringing our Bibles, but if you have brought your Bible, there's a couple things in this passage that I would like for you to highlight or underline if you happen to have it, and I will, of course, have it on the screen for you. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. This particular passage has been widely used for all sorts of different reasons um, and for a kind of a Christian expression called apologetics. And the reason for that is because that first phrase right there, give an answer, is the Greek word apologia. Everybody say apologia. Good job. It's where we get our word apology. Sometimes it's translated as a defense. And what's fascinating about this passage, if you notice, and this actually happens in the Hebrew quite a bit, but here it happens in the Greek, where the author is doing this little play on words. Even, you can't see it in the English in the same way, but they'll say one particular word, and then they'll use that exact same word or a slight variation of it to mean something else on the other side. And here, this author is doing the same thing. Prepared to apologia to everyone who asks you to give the logia. Do you hear the phrase there? Now, here's what's fascinating. The word logia, which would mean reason or logic, sometimes it means a response. And the prefix in the Greek, I know, welcome to class, everybody. The prefix in the Greek, apo, means to send. So an apology, or the original definition or meaning of apology, is to provide such a response to somebody's critique or somebody's criticism that sends their critique away. It's a way of saying, I, I receive what you are saying, I receive what critique or criticism you're giving, but I'm going to respond in such a way as to send it away. I'm going to apologia. Now, this verse, verse 15, has been used widely and is the grounding verse for a kind of Christian expression called apologetics. Has anybody ever heard of a thing called apologetics? Most of us in the room have engaged with apologetics. And in summary, the way that this gets expressed is defenses for the Christian faith. And what that often means is arguments that prove Christianity true. So, for example, uh, how can you know that you can trust the Bible? That's one of the apologetic arguments or conversations people have. And you go through manuscript evidence, you go through textual criticism, you go through archaeology, and all of that stuff proves that the Bible is true. Another one of those is how can you prove God's existence? And a lot of people get very philosophical and talk about all sorts of arguments from physics and science and cosmology all of this stuff. And if you can kind of get a sense from just even the snapshots that I've created, defending the faith as if there's a huge onslaught into the validity of Christianity. God doesn't need defending, but people need help understanding. That's a really nice, hey, welcome to our ministry right there. Um, teaching people to think, challenging believers to think and thinkers to believe. The fundamental essence of apologetics is this argument usually philosophical or logical based upon these words, right? 
for why Christianity is true. As you can imagine, if you've been at Spark for any period of time, I take a slightly different turn and twist on much of these things. And I'd like to say that I'm not necessarily against apologetics, although talk to me afterwards if you're really interested. But what I am fascinated in, and if I can back up here, is the context of this passage really has nothing to do with a philosophical, logical argument for the validity of the philosophy or the theology of Christianity. Read this carefully again. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, the context of this passage isn't about how all of a sudden there was some sort of enlightenment period in the first century, and all of a sudden people are coming with arguments for why Jesus isn't true and the resurrection is false and you can't trust the Bible. These are not the kinds of arguments that this passage is entering into. They're entering into a way in which early Christians were living and behaving, and ancient people were criticizing them for how they were behaving, how they were living, what kind of goodness that they were doing, and then they were persecuting them. And that is this context. Now, it's even recited here again. Prepare to give an answer to everyone who asks you. Give the reason for the hope that you have. Reason for the hope. Why, why are you hoping for something in the future? Do this with gentle disrespect, keep it in clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your, what? Good behavior. The context for this passage is, how Christians were behaving, how they were living, and the criticism that they were garnering as a result. So even though apologetics may be a wonderful arm of Christian thought, this may be the better context for what was happening. Many of you know about Nero, and you know about the Great Fire of 64. This is very popularly known where Nero, who was a little bit of a megalomaniac, a little bit of an uh, ego-driven kind of an emperor— as most emperors usually are, actually, decided that his city wasn't big enough, wasn't strong enough, wasn't opulent enough. So he decided to rebuild the city. But in order to rebuild the city, what do you have to do? You have to tear it down. And so the fundamental rumor about the ancient history is that Nero actually set fire to his own city. And he decides to do so because he wants to rebuild it so that his name would be great. This is a very common practice in the ancient world. This is an image called the Torches of Nero. And if you can see off to the side, there are people bound up because they are going to be lighting the streets. Because as people started to realize, wait a second, I'm fleeing my home. This city is now in ruins. I'm having to take refuge away from this place that I know. I think Nero did it. This was actually one of those rumors. Nero set the city on fire. It was him. And in order for Nero to then assuage the people, say, no, 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 it wasn't us, he needed a scapegoat. And who were those scapegoats? Christians. And those are the ones who got burned at the stake. Tacitus in 117 AD writes this. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted. Not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, 
or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when the daylight had expired. So Tacitus describes this gruesome event where Nero decides to scapegoat the Christians, and you can see it right here. Nailed to crosses, torn by dogs, wrapped in the skins of beasts, burned to flesh. This is horrible stuff that's happening. And when Peter writes, usually most people are saying it's about the same time, uh, 64 when the fire happens. When Peter's writing, he hears of this, and he recognizes this is coming. This is our new reality. And all of you Christians, you are being persecuted for doing good, for being good, for all of your good works. And this is what is happening to us. So you need to be prepared to provide an answer, a response for why you live upon this hope. Why were the Christians targeted for such things? Of all the people that Nero could have pointed to, why Christians? Why this particular sect? Now, some scholars suggest that Christianity was exploding, was growing, and that's one of the reasons. But there's also another reason. When you read some of the other ancient writers, specifically from Rome, they don't speak very highly of these Christians. Here's Celsus from 175 AD. The following are the rules laid down by them. He's talking about the Christians. Let no one come to us who has been instructed or who is wise or prudent, for such qualifications are deemed evil by us. Now listen carefully. These are, Tacitus is talking about what Christians are saying. But if there be any ignorant or unintelligent, uninstructed or foolish persons, let them come with confidence. Now, Notice, this is Celsus using very deprecating language for the different kinds of people. I mean, do we have people in this world that put certain people in categories less worthy than other people? Do we have that today? And we use very deprecating language for that? Celsus says here, these Christians were taking those people who are marginalized, being deprecated, being diminished in their humanity, and saying, come. You can come and be a part of our community. This is his criticism of Christians. By which words, acknowledging that such individuals are worthy of their God, they manifestly show that they desire and are able to gain over only the silly and the mean and the stupid with women and children. Congratulations, women and children. You're in that same category with all these other people that don't have that same stature. But notice this criticism. Celsus is saying this group of people called the Christians, the people that we consider dumb and stupid and unintelligent and women and children, etc., these Christians are welcoming them in and saying that they can come in with full confidence and have the same standing with God as they do. Now think about that for a moment. The criticism that Celsus has in this statement, is not that uh, they're just they're stupid in the brain and their, their philosophy is dumb and it doesn't make sense. No, his criticism is look how they are treating people who belong in lower classes. People who we as Rome, as the empire, have deemed less than human. Are you with me? Do you see the criticism here? These early Christians looked at them as a 
pure outgrowth of their faith and say, they are not less than human. They do not belong in a lower caste. They do not belong in a diminished level in society. They are equal among us. Let them come with full confidence. This is the criticism. This is the harsh words that Peter is talking about, that people are saying about these Christians. Uh, Pliny in 113 uh, turns out to be the governor uh, of Bithynia up there in the northern portion of what is today modern Turkey. And this is very apropos. At the very beginning of the book, Peter is actually writing to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontia, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's writing to this group of people. Well, later, Pliny becomes the governor of this particular location. And the story goes that there are some people that are criticizing Christians once again for their behavior, brings them to Pliny, and Pliny does this little court thing and says, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? And the people that deny it and then fall down and worship the emperor, he lets go. And the people that say, I am a Christian, and he does this three times, I am a Christian, I do follow Christ, he executes them. He's a little disturbed by this. Because the emperor Trajan at the time did not tell Pliny what he should do with these Christians. So he's like, I, I, I think I'm supposed to kill him. Is that what I'm supposed to do? So he writes this letter to Trajan inquiring what I'm supposed to do. And in that letter, he writes a little bit about who these people are. They asserted, however, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsibly a hymn to Christ as to a God. So Pliny's writing, these Christians are claiming this Christ as a God and to bind themselves by oath, which would be a covenant in Greek terms, this beautiful divine relationship. Not to some crime, not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not to falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return trust when called upon to do so. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food. Even this they affirmed, they had ceased to do, even this they affirmed, they had ceased to do after my edict by which, in accordance with your instructions, I had forbidden political associations. In other words, they were submitting to the emperor. Hey, don't gather the way you're, you're gathering, I'm telling you to please don't do so. Accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. Worship, Christ is God, sharing of meals, submitting to the emperor. And I love this little hint there. Two women who were slaves. That's the caste system in the Roman were deaconesses in the church. This is amazing. And what he says is, I discovered nothing but depraved and excessive superstition, which is all these things that these Christians believed. So when we think about 1 Peter, always give an answer for when people are criticizing you. Think about this. Being criticized... bad words coming to you because you are welcoming those who don't belong in society. You are causing slaves to be equal and even leaders within your community. You are sharing meals together. 
this is what they're being criticized for. And Peter's saying, give a reason for that. Let's get ready to rumble on that. So, later on, in 197, there's one of the church fathers, one of the church leaders. His name is Tertullian. He actually writes, in response to 1 Peter's commission, please write an answer, a response. He writes an apology. This comes late 2nd century. And I want you to read carefully. Please engage. I know this was pretty heady. Please hear what Tertullian is writing. Because he's going to be responding to all of these critics. And he's not going to give a philosophical construct. Listen to what he says. We meet together as an assembly and congregation that, offering up prayer to God as with united force, we may wrestle with him in our supplications. Supplications are requests to God, asking of God, pleading with God. This strong exertion God delights in. I love it. In the very beginning of this letter, of this uh, apology that Tertullian writes, God actually likes it when we wrestle with him. So this tradition goes way back for us. We are a body knit together as such by a common religious profession, by unity of discipline and by the bond of a common hope. We are here because we profess Christ and because we believe in something that is coming. We pray, too, for the emperors, for their ministers and for all in authority, for the welfare of the world, for the prevalence of peace, for the delay of the final consummation. I mean, get this. Second century, when Nero, and then just go down the list of all the other emperors, all the things that they are doing to persecute and murder and extinguish Christianity, we pray also for the emperors. We pray for the ministers. We pray for all in authority, for the welfare of the world. This is his apology. This is his apologetic That's how we behave. That's who we are. We are people that pray for people in power. We are people that pray for the peace of the world. We are people that pray for the delay of the end of the world. We assemble to read our sacred writings, and with the sacred words, we nourish our faith. We animate our hope. We make our confidence more steadfast. And no less by deep study of God's principles, we confirm good habits. In other words, we behave well in this world as a result of reading and studying. The tried men, oh, this is one of my favorite passages. The tried men of our elders preside over us, obtaining that honor not by purchase, but by established character. We have leaders in our community that did not buy their way in. You want to talk about like a snub to the emperors and to all the governors who buy their way in? There is no buying and selling of any sort in the things of God. Though we have our treasure chest, it is not made up of purchase money as of a religion that has its price. Oh, man, this feels so relevant today. On the monthly day, if he likes, each puts in a small donation, but only if it is his pleasure and only if he is able, for there is no compulsion. All is voluntary. Love it. These gifts are not spent on feasts and drinking bouts and eating houses, but to support and bury poor people, to supply the wants of boys and girls destitute of means and parents, and of old persons confined now to the house, such too as have suffered shipwreck. Do you hear his argument? 
It is how they are behaving. Children, orphans, widows, the destitute, the people who don't, who cannot make it in this society. Tertullian is saying, this is what we do. This is who we are as believers, as Christians. And if there happened to be any in the mines or banished to the islands or shut up in the prisons for nothing but their fidelity to the cause of God's church, they become the nurslings of their confession. But it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. This is an amazing passage to me. This is 2nd century, 197 A.D. And when Christians are being criticized, they are being criticized for helping the poor, loving the orphan, demolishing the hierarchical caste systems that societies and empires put people in. This is what they're being criticized for. So when Peter writes, have a response, have an apology, this is Tertullian's response. This is who we are. It comes from our faith. It comes from our deep allegiance to our God's teachings. It comes from the person of Jesus to whom we give allegiance and discipline. So, to all of these who criticize, to all of these who say, these Christians have a stupid, unintelligent, superstitious way of being religious, Christians respond by saying, we welcome all, regardless of class, race, status, and even gender. We worship Jesus Christ as God, which is totally to say that the emperor is not. We willfully cared for those less fortunate, and we are deeply, deeply grounded in hope and in love. This is their response. So when you read 1 Peter chapter 3, and you need to provide a response, I hope that we now think differently. What is our response to that critique? Hope good behavior. The early Christians were spoken against because of a harsh criticism of their good works, not because their faith was illogical, but because of how they were behaving. Are you with me? You good? There's a problem. For that was what was going on in first to second and third centuries. Question, what are 21st century Christians being criticized for? And how do we send away criticism? This is a completely different question. See how questions lead to more questions? So if the first century Christians, second century Christians, were being criticized for being good in the world, what are 21st century Christians being criticized for? Which ultimately is my question, so why are we Christians? If that's what you call yourself. I'm going to take a stab at addressing that to prompt us into thinking and having a conversation around two main things, story and struggle. If you read carefully all these ancient writers, those early Christians had a story, the story of God, the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the story of the matriarchs, the story of Deborah, the story of Jesus and Paul. They had those stories, and they were saying, we are living out that story, which is why our last series was entitled, This is Our Story. I wanted all of us to participate in recognizing we are continuing on that story. And then the second piece that I'd like to encourage you is struggle. We all have a story and then we're all having a struggle. And this is what I see as the two main themes of what was happening in the first and second century. So first, when it comes to story, there are some things that are part of my story 
Like, if I were to answer the question for you, why am I a Christian? Well, one of them is my parents got divorced at a very early age. And even though, I mean, there's lots of things that go along with that. Some of you come from divorced families. Some of you come from uh, places where parents are absent. That's deeply shaping for you. And in a world where home, for me, was not home, the church became my home. I was invited in. I was that kid who was on the outside, and they welcomed me in as an equal. And yes, I am the one over there without a shirt on. I'm terribly sorry about that. (laughs) This is a little band that I played in with our, our youth group. And I remember part of my story, why am I a Christian, if I'm absolutely honest, is because I didn't think Jesus was God. I didn't think the Bible was true. I didn't think that I had all the arguments down. You know why I became a Christian? I was on the outs. I didn't have a home. I didn't feel like there was a place that was safe. And this group of people welcomed me in. Their good works and good deeds welcomed me in. And as a result of that shift in my life, which is the main reason why I'm even here today, I got to participate in an amazing journey of finding deeper community and having wonderful conversations and participating in all sorts of different churches and getting to share this same message with others, to provide that same hope and to welcome in the same. And along the way, I met some amazing people that shared with me new ways of thinking about faith. And she's not in here. Okay, good. She's not here. And those people shaped me and encouraged me and welcomed me in. So one of the questions I would ask you in this question of why are you a Christian is, let's just talk about your story. What is your story? How did you get here? What were the things that caused you to come into this movement in the first place? What are the things that caused you to think about Jesus maybe in a new way? And I remember, you know, at the very early portions of my life where church was just so boring, but the people of God were so loving, and I was so welcomed in. The second thing is the struggle. As my faith has continued on, I've had to ask this question, do I still actually believe some of these things? There's a lot of changes. There's technological changes that have happened. There are shifts and things. There are generational divides that happen here. (laughs) This is one of my favorite pictures. These technological advancements, as some of you have heard me talk about, are radically shifting what we thought or what we think about this world. The radical polarization and the psychology that goes with that has been deeply painful and hurtful for many of us in this community. The existential crisis of this is what I feel versus this is what I think, or maybe I'm even having my own crisis of I don't really like that faith expression that I used to have in a previous iteration or whatever, this constant struggle between two things. And then there's also the struggle of tragedy and loss and pain and hurt and sorrow. These are also things that are part of the struggle. And so when you go through those things, very much like early Christians had to go through the struggle of emperors coming to kill them and crucify them, we don't have the same thing per se, but we have all sorts of other cultural forces that are causing us to now struggle. Do I still believe this and in what way? And in the midst of a world in which faith, Christianity, religion, and all that feels at times like it is being hijacked, I know that one of the ways in which Spark is attempting to address this question, why are we a church? Why do we still profess Jesus? Why is that important to us? Why do we still read the Bible? I mean, in the midst of a world that might talk about this book as some sort of archaic, irrelevant text that was 
written by illiterate people and ignorant people way back when, you know, when you get all of those things or maybe when, you know, you, whatever criticisms come, why? What, what is this all about? We don't offer just an apologetic. Let me give you the five reasons why this is true. Let me give you the four philosophical constructs. No, we actually provide very much like Tertullian, a very different answer. You know why we're a Christian? Do you know why we're a church? Do you know why we follow Jesus? Because deep within that faith, we see a direct line from every person being created in the image of God that they deserve dignity and freedom and rescue. And that just because people move addresses and are displaced from their homes because of no reason other than another empire or another war or another catastrophe, they still deserve dignity and respect. And they are just as human as we are. And we are all on the same grounds. Part of our apology, part of our apologetic, part of our response to this is that even though there's so much animosity and even oftentimes violence that is done in the name of faith and in the name of religion, we seek the deepest aspects of God's goodness and compassion in our communities. And even though the world still is torn apart by all sorts of isms and tribalism and separation and injustices, our faith teaches us that every single person, everyone, is equal in the eyes of God. And we fight to ensure that our systems treat each other in that same way. When there are questions, we seek to dig deep and understand. And if there's any possibility for us to leverage our finances, to leverage our hands and our feet, we do so to bring rescue in this world. So if I were to answer the question for us, that would pose even more questions. Why are we a Christian? I would like for us to consider a a response that is similar to Tertullian. Let me tell you how we act. Let me tell you how we behave. Let me tell you what is important to us. Let me tell you what is deeply rooted in our Messiah's teachings, how I see one another. And that, hopefully, is how we respond in a world that criticizes Christianity, that criticizes faith, that criticizes religion. And we can get back a little bit to that primal, primal essence of who we are. Okay? I hope that we've started the conversation. That was my goal. For why? Why? Well, we have some stories to tell. And I hope that through your time, through your community, through your small group, through, with each other, we begin to tell these stories. What is your story? How did you get here? And what is your struggle? What is your story? What is your struggle? And through that together, we can strengthen for all of us the reason and the purpose and the meaning and the power and the impact of what our faith is and is supposed to do in this world. Amen?